Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's covered the sport since Ricky Stenhouse Jr. was negative four years old. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Been kicking off another episode, Lifetime of NASCAR. Uh, something that I've loved for pretty much a lifetime is racing T-shirts. I have a passion for like finding the you know the the, the gaudy ones that are the like all over print, um, and I, I've I've got quite a few of them. Some of them that are more new, um, some that are pretty old school. Uh, wanted to know your your take on NASCAR T-shirts, maybe now and and. Um, what was the first one you ever had that you can remember? Oh, man, uh, that's a really good question. Um, probably it was a Bobby Allison T-shirt, and I'm thinking it was mid-70s, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was about the time, uh, actually, 77. I think it was one of the old Matador shirts. And, uh, yeah, I just they've come a long way. And, and that, you know, I was trying to think back to exactly when the, the T-shirts came out i know that back in the 1950s they had some uh some like champion auto light type t-shirts that you could buy yeah but not necessarily directed towards a driver uh you know of course there was a lot of stuff with richard petty in the 70s and uh, a little bit with david pearson some some with kale not the same sort of type of uh you know souvenir industry that we had in the say 80s and 90s and 2000s but just a, a little bit that you could find here and there around racetracks. And a lot of that kind of stuff was done, you know, basically mom and pop until it became very sophisticated. And, and the, the person I would give credit for uh, to to bring it into sophistication like that would have been Dale Earnhardt because he, yeah. he was the one that kind of saw how things were going to go and, capitalized on it but i tell you my all-time favorite t-shirt and i guess i can say this on the air but there's one from the early 80s and i believe it was when uh dale earnhardt was driving for bud moore the number 15 wrangler ford and mm-hmm. it was yellow and he he wore it a lot and he took it off his uniform off and it said damn i'm good yes i know exactly <laughs> what you're talking one? about i have that picture it's saved on my phone it's saved on my ipad yeah that the the damn i'm good shirt i 
I don't know why NASCAR hasn't like come out with just a second version of that. I don't know where he got it, um, but that picture of him, it is from like 1980, 81, 82 in that range. That is not only is that a cool T-shirt, that's one of the coolest pictures, I think, in NASCAR history. Yeah, I think so. And and I, if I had to bet money, some fan maybe gave it to him or somebody went to a just a local t-shirt type shop and had that done for him or he might have done it himself who knows yeah. but it was just cool i just remember seeing those those photos uh you know late, early on and uh how cool it was i mean think about it, the man wearing it he didn't have to say anything else right it was just yeah it fit him completely well not only physically but uh, as far as his driving style for sure <laughs> yeah i mean it's if you had to think of uh of pairing race car drivers with t-shirts um i don't know I, that'd be a tough one i have to think about that but um so when i think about like the newer era of nascar t-shirts since the um you know since uh chase authentics which was started if i'm not mistaken ben was that started by jeff gordon and dale earnhardt or is that action performance uh, i'm thinking it was action I, i'm okay. not 100 percent sure about that i know yeah. action fred wagon hall's uh, was the, one of the first to come into the sport diecast wise. I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100 percent sure on that. We'll have to ch- we'll have to check with our crack research team of myself and Ben. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, yeah. but so um, a few years ago, two three years ago, I got a T-shirt which I think is the coolest one that I have in my collection. Um, I'm not like a T-shirt collector, Ben, but I think having a you know a decent little uh, array of options is 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 good. Um, covers a lot of bases, but so my favorite one that I have is a Jimmy Johnson 2000 t-shirt from when he drove the number 92 Alltail car for Herzog Motorsports in the Bush Series. Um, came across that and, um, spent more than I ever have for a t-shirt on it. I'm not going to say how much it was. (laughs) It wasn't that, it was not exorbitant, but it was like, if you went to nascar.com right now and you bought a t-shirt, you would save money compared to what I paid. But I didn't pay like a hundred bucks, but like, yeah. I saw that. It was one of those situations, Ben, where I saw that and I was like, okay, I have to have this. It doesn't matter. I have to have it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I've worn it a few times, but that's one that, you know, you want to take good care of. It was in immaculate condition. Um, so, on the, you know, the front of it, it's that, you know, wrap around print too, you know, so it's like a big 92 on it and the all tail car and Jimmy Johnson, the, um, his name is in cursive on the back. It's got a huge number 92 in the all tail logo. Um, so like, if you like about getting an all tail t-shirt, you think it was Ryan Newman, but kind of crazy that that was Jimmy Johnson's sponsor in the Bush series. And then they left and they sponsored Ryan Newman, who became his rival to win rookie of the year in the cup series in 2002. And not only was his, his rival, he beat Jimmy Johnson to win Rookie of the Year. So it kind of a crazy footnote that Jimmy Johnson, the subject of the coolest NASCAR shirt that I own, has all these records in NASCAR, has won seven championships. Hopefully he'll be a pretty good IndyCar driver. It remains to be seen. But he did not win Rookie of the Year. He won, He lost it to Ryan Newman. Um, I do not have a cool Ryan Newman shirt, but would you know? I, I welcome suggestions from people. Um, I just think it's a really neat industry. And honestly, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Ben, was – you know, I knew you had an idea for whatever the, the first T-shirt it was that you had um, and when you got it. But, like, what was the T-shirt business like in the 70s? Like, when you went to a race, I mean, was there, like, a souvenir stand? I mean, I know there were not trailers. So what was the scope of that whole thing like then? Well, the way I remember it, Aaron, was back in those days, 
it was like I said before, a lot of mom and pop type stuff and out of station wagons. And, you know, a lot of times though, the teams would come up with their own stuff. I remember the Petties uh, could uh, have uh, a vehicle of some type there at the racetrack and they would sell, you know, bumper stickers and maybe t-shirts and that kind of thing. It wasn't very sophisticated early in the seventies like that. And, uh, it was one of those situations that, uh, you know, whoever could come up with a great idea to promote their particular driver, they would do it. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, licensing type stuff that was involved in it back in those days. It was more of a, like I say, mom and pop type operation. And it was more, on those days, it was a situation to where it was promoting their favorite driver, and they didn't care, right, because they were being promoted. Their sure. sponsor was being promoted. Yeah. As time went on, and we got more into a corporate arena with NASCAR, of course, then they reined in some of that and, and made it more uh, contractual with the drivers and the sponsors and and to what, what we have today. But, you know, when you were talking a minute ago, I thought of another one I had. I was actually writing about NASCAR when I got this one, but it's really cool and I still have it. Uh, two of them, actually. A friend of mine gave me a 1983 Bobby Allison Miller uh, t shirt that's still in the bag, and I'm like, I'm not going to open that. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. The second one was I went on an interview to talk to Cotton Owens, and it was in Spartanburg, and his son gave me a really cool Cotton Owens Garage t shirt. Huh. And I had to wear that one. That one was fun. I'd wear that one with blue jeans and, and just hang out in that one. It's a little rough now, but I do know that there's a couple of the Bobby Allison ones I still have. I don't know whatever happened to the Matador one. I you know that I wish I had it now. Lord, I mean, I could put my grandson through college maybe, but yeah, I don't know whatever happened to it. It was just one I think I bought at the racetrack, and that would have had to have been mid-70s. And like you, I'm sure I paid a little more you know, for it, but... Anyway, I mean, you know, you think back all the stuff, all the bad decisions you made. When I say bad decisions, I'm talking about leaving it in the cellophane and not wearing it and all that. And man, I just wish I'd have held on to that one. That would that would have been fun to have. Yeah, and it's funny that we're talking about these like like it's a wine collection or something. Like you have these, you know, these vintages that you pull out of the cellar. I mean, I think a lot of race fans, though, you know, they're 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 pretty particular about their t-shirts and what they like. You know, some people like the uh, the low key, like the car number on the left, like the left pocket. Um, mm-hmm. and then maybe like a logo on the back, you know, I'll, if I'm getting like a racing t-shirt, I like it to just, you know, I don't want like a lot of open space. <laughs> I, if you've got some, if you've got colors and sponsors and numbers and stuff on it, that's what I go for. Um, a couple other ones that I've got that are really cool. Ben are, they're not like NASCAR licensed, but this screen printing company a few years ago made, uh, days of thunder shirt so it looks like a modern like cup driver shirt but mm-hmm. it has cole trickles um super flow car and a big 46 on it that one's really cool uh, i have this i have a version of him and his city chevrolet car too um some of you guys may have seen dale jr tweeted um a picture of him wearing a uh, a russ wheeler shirt that was very much this it's, it's from the same guy that i got these from so um mm. you know yeah it's not nascar license but i think they're really cool and um, you know, I think there's a, I think there's still quite a few really cool racing t-shirts in, in the industry. It's just the, de- the design has changed so much, you know? Um, like, so I was at the Coca-Cola 600 bin God, six years ago now and walking down pit road and I just see this guy in 
a perfect 1988 Winston Cup Series scheduled Dale Earnhardt shirt. Um, just one of the coolest things ever. I had to take his picture. Um, I have seen that shirt on eBay once or twice, but I have not. I have not pulled the trigger. Um, in doing research for this subject, though, I was so I was looking up like, all right, so what would it cost me if I wore like a 1996, 1997 Dale Senior Goodrich shirt? And people are charging like 150 bucks for them if they're selling mm. the bag. So there is. You know, yeah, the prices are high, but I do think the demand has gotten much higher for for like vintage NASCAR merchandise and T-shirts, and you see all kinds of people wearing them, which is so cool. Um, I have said before on this podcast, I'm a Charlotte Hornets fan, and Devontae Graham, our point guard, um, that he was going into the arena a few weeks ago, and he was wearing a Dale Jr. Budweiser shirt, um, which is <laughs> cool. super. And and Devontae Graham's from Raleigh, so yeah, he's he's grown up in you know the state that's you know very NASCAR crazy. Um, but I thought that was super cool. Um, and that, I don't think that's an isolated thing. I think a lot of people uh, across all platforms of professional sports have become bigger NASCAR fans, um, which is really cool. And, and T-shirts give people a chance to express that without spending, you know, an exorbitant amount of money. Right. So right. Um, right. it's it's definitely a pretty neat thing. Um, and we'll kind of see where it goes. I right. don't buy a lot of them anymore, but I'm constantly looking. So, I mean, mm-hmm. again, well, this makes me sound like a wine drinker. Like I, I shop a lot. I just don't pull the trigger a lot. Right. You know what? There's a couple of times that I've heard people say they found old t-shirts at some of these, uh, type flea markets and still in the cellophane and really didn't know what they had. And, you know, they're like, Oh, cool. That's, uh, you know, that's a 1981 Daryl Waltrip Mountain Dew shirt. And they yeah. just didn't. And the reason they had it there is because grand, their grandfather was a race fan and he had maybe passed away or whatever. And then they had some stuff uh, out of a tote that he had. And, oh, yeah, we'll just see if we can sell it. No idea that how, how vintage and how cool that was. And I think fans gravitate towards different areas. Like for me, for instance, I had a couple of T-shirts yet. I sort of wish I'd gotten more into that but i was more into the the nascar sheet metal side than i was the you know the t-shirt side yeah and that has been very rewarding to me you know because now that i have what i call my lunchroom and i hope that in the future of a lifetime of nascar we'll be able to show it later that would be that would be super cool so i do have to ask you one question ben You, you talk about the sheet metal do you have enough that you could like make a car Oh yeah, <laughs> seriously, that's awesome. Yeah, I do. Yeah, oh yeah, I do. I, in all honesty, I've probably got in my inventory right now about seventy pieces. And and tires? Uh, no, no tires. I you do have tires. a friend of mine gave me a Terry Labonte wheel. Uh, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. It was a Kyle Busch wheel that had number five on it. Okay. Know, when he was and doing the Kellogg sponsorship. Yeah. With Rick Hendrick, but uh. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, so I think we all just get into whatever area that we are introduced to. And I'll tell you, I've said this before on the show, but the reason I got into sheet metal, I found a piece of sheet metal after a race at Darlington that belonged to Junie Donlevy and his driver was Dick Brooks. And it was a a rear quarter panel that had trucks more on it. Mm -hmm. And I took the thing home. They're like, sure, you can have it. It's just going to be junk. And back in those days, they just didn't save anything. Yeah. Eddie Wood, Lynn Wood, uh, uh, Glenn, before he passed away, he told me, he said, yeah, we just throw that stuff in the dumpster and have it it off to the metal guy. And it's like, man, I'd love to have had a David Pearson door, for instance. But I mean, I guess nobody does, right? Maybe outside his family. No, nobody did in those days. And uh, so 
I I took that piece of uh, Junie Dunleavy Ford sheet metal home, and my dad finally said, what are you going to do with that old piece of sheet metal? And I said, oh, I don't know. We can probably get rid of it. Not knowing. I had See, I had it, I had it in my mind, and I had the right thing going for me to just grab a piece here and there, even back in the 70s. But nobody did that. I, I didn't pick up on how cool it would be. Well, then later on in the, say, early 80s and uh, through the 80s, a few times people would grab some stuff. But in the 90s, it sort of took off, early 90s. So most of what I have is some early 90s type sheet metal up to the present. And uh, But, yeah, it's just back to my original thought. It was just that that's what people do. You might gravitate to sheet metal. You might do die cast. You might do T-shirts. And uh, it's just kind of fun to go. But you find these things sometimes in the most obscure areas. You might find one in an antique store, a T-shirt, and you just, they didn't know what it was. And you, you know, like the Bobby Allison shirt that I told you about, a friend of mine gave it to me and he said, I, I just thought you'd like to have it since you're so close to BA, you can have yeah. it. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to have it. So I'm, there's no way I'm going to un- unwrap it. It's just cool to have. For sure. I, do you have any Michael Waltrip shirts? No, can't say that I do. You know, I, I don't. I feel like I should, though, because I was such a DEI fan in the early 2000s. And I bring up Michael Waltrip because Michael Waltrip is the driver of the week for the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Um, Michael Waltrip, took, it, he needed 463 races to win a NASCAR Cup Series event. But, you know, people say that, Ben, you know, I get it. It is the longest dry spell before somebody got their first win, so it's always going to be notable. But, like, we're just glossing over the fact that five years before Michael Waltrip won the 2001 Daytona 500, he won the All-Star Race. So it wasn't like he had never been to victory lane in a major event. And if you ask me, I would almost rather win, and this is just me, I'd almost rather win the All-Star Race in its heyday and that be my only win than win, like, one cup race at a track that, Imagine a track that you think is not a big deal. I'm not even going to name one because I don't know off the top of my head, but name some track that you could just be a throwaway. Anybody in the audience, you, you pick one. I'd probably rather take the all-star race because I grew up going to the mm-hmm. all-star race and I went to that all-star race that he won. And I'm pretty sure you covered it. Didn't you, Ben? Oh, I'm sure. Yes, I was there that night. And uh, yeah, <laughs> he he uh, he did win there. You know, that was something that. A lot of people looked at Dale Earnhardt a little funny and said, why are you hiring Michael to drive your number 15 car? And he's like, because Michael's got talent. And I'm like, yeah, but he's 0 for 463. What do you see? But they had a great relationship, and he knew there was something there. And you, you got to go back to another point, too, Aaron, is the fact that the chemistry is so incredibly important in this business. And so, yeah, he drove for so many great race teams, but – you know, you've got, it's unlike a basketball and a basketball hoop. I mean, there's so many working parts to this plan, crew chief, car, driver, meshing together, chemistry, all these things. So some, I guess that chemistry didn't come together until 1996 when he did win the all-star race for the Wood Brothers. And by the way, he got in that race uh, by winning the open prior to the Winston that night. Mm-hmm. And so it all came together. And then five years later, like you mentioned, he comes back and wins the Daytona 500 and, and has, what, four wins, I think. So, But there's a lot of drivers out there that competed in NASCAR competition, Cup Series competition, that never got a win. Yeah. So, hey, you, you know, you it's the toughest form of auto racing in the world. And to say you're a winner in the Cup Series, is, it doesn't matter if you got one or 
200, you're a winner. That's so I was, I see it. absolutely. So I was, I was watching, rewatching the 1996 Winston. I think it was called the Winston select then recently. Um, and that was the race to give you guys some background. That was when Dale Earnhardt was driving the Olympics themed, uh, 1996 U S Olympic games, good wrench car. Um, that, that was the only special paint scheme in that race, which a few years later would definitely not be the truth for only having one. But um, he was a favorite. Jeff Gordon was a favorite. Terry Labonte was super fast. Michael Waltrip's car was junk. Like, he barely made it into the race. The top five from the open advanced. He finished fifth. So Randy Pemberton interviews him um, at the gas pumps after the open is over, which Jimmy Spencer won. I had totally forgotten that, Ben. We're going to have to talk more about Jimmy Spencer in a future episode. I totally forgot he won the Winston Open. I saw him win a race. That was kind of cool. But mm-hmm. So he talks to Michael, and he's like, you know, tell us about the car. And he's like, the car's terrible. We I, I, we had a feeling we were going to struggle tonight. We just haven't hit a setup. I don't really know what we're going to do. Um, you know, cool to be in the Winston. Um, I just I don't know what we're going to do. Um, it's just not good. And then he goes out and wins a race. He starts last and he wins. Um, Dale Earnhardt and Terry Labonte in the last segment get together. They're fighting for the lead. Michael just drives under him, coming out of turns one and two, and wins the race. Uh, so I don't know if they were really bad, Ben, or if he was just sandbagging. Because, you know, you, I don't want to say he was sandbagging, but it didn't seem like he was struggling that bad in the open. And then his car was pretty darn quick from the go in the all-star race. So do you think that those Wood Brothers guys would would uh, would have hidden something or made him be like, you know, listen, we got something really good, but don't let anybody know. Well, I mean, I think anybody would. And, and, and the beautiful part of doing the all-star race is because there's no points on the line. You can go out there and, uh, of course, you got to stay within the rules, yes. But I'm saying this is your chance to maybe try something a little bit different strategy-wise. It's not the end of the world if you didn't win it. It's great if you do win it. And so that's what's cool about, say, the Bush Clash and and back when they were running it on the you know, 2.5 Oval at Daytona. Same thing with the Charlotte uh, Winston where you can just go out there and experiment a little bit. And, and on top of that, just have some fun. Put your, Let your hair down. You don't have to worry about points. You don't have to worry about, I have to win. And, yeah, I mean, there's there's all types of uh, strategy that goes on. And those guys are really, really smart. The Wood Brothers are. I always have been. And and they're, they're so good at pointing out the obvious, but you don't see the obvious, yep. if you know what I mean. And they – that car was just really on top of the world that night and and Michael was aboard and of course he had talent to bring to it and all those pieces did come together for to, to win it that night but and then you go of uh, like you say a few years later and and all the pieces fall together again and he was really really good at places like Daytona and Talladega throughout his career he just for whatever reason didn't have the engine didn't have whatever he needed until uh, you know, Michael got to DEI and then he started winning on the super speedways. And that's, that was his bed, bread and butter track was Daytona and Talladega. And then from there, after he retired from driving, he, he made himself, he wrote himself another chapter, uh, reinvented himself and went into television has done quite well there. So, and he's a character. I mean, he's, he's one of these really funny type guys that all the time, every time I've ever interviewed him, he was a lot of fun to talk to and, so I just have a lot of respect for Michael, and uh, you know he was a team owner. He's done a lot of things in the business, and I, I, my hat's off to him. 
Yeah, he and and you know that it's interesting that people look at him now as as a super speedway ace because I mean he, he became one. You know, he goes to DEI, he wins his first race with them, the Daytona 500. He wins another Daytona 500. Uh, he also won the July race at Daytona, and he won at Talladega too. So uh, he is part of a small fraternity of drivers who won multiple Daytona 500s. And if you look at the people who aren't in that list, you know Dale Earnhardt, David Pearson. There's some pretty big pretty big names. Um, and that's not counting the people who never won it at all, like uh, Tony Stewart, Mark Martin, Rusty Wallace, the Labonte brothers, um, a, a bunch of stars. So, you know, he stuck with it for a long time, Ben, and it definitely it definitely worked out in his favor. Um, but, you know, this being episode 15, you know, we, we would be remiss not to talk about the car owner who had such a big impact on NASCAR and, and on the career of somebody we talk about a lot, Bobby Allison. And on the career of somebody else we talk about a lot, Dale Earnhardt, and that gentleman certainly is Bud Moore. Uh, he very synonymous with the number 15 car. But Ben, when you think of a... So if I say the phrase Bud Moore car, what's the one that pops into your head first? Well, immediately the one that pops in my head is the number 15 Norris Industries uh, Thunderbird that Bobby Allison drove to uh, victory in the 78 Daytona 500. And what's so unique about that story... He wasn't feeling well. He was sick that weekend. He was having some stomach issues and just didn't feel well. Uh, the driver that was the driver of the 15 prior to Bobby getting in the car was Buddy Baker. Buddy had had some good success with Bud Moore in the 15 car. Well, as fate would have it, Buddy and Bobby got together in the 125 qualifying race and just did a lot of damage to Bobby's car and, of course, Buddy's car too. So that was basically uh, insult against injury, so to speak. And so he comes back, Bobby comes back after and says, you know, sorry, I messed up the car. I'm just going to go back to the hotel. I don't feel well. And he was ready to go back to Alabama. Mm -hmm. And, but, but said, well, just hold, hold on. Let's don't go to Alabama. Let's just see what we can do with the car. And, but you go back to the hotel and rest and hope you feel better. At that time he was having some stomach issues of some kind and just didn't feel well. And he had lost a lot of weight. So he goes back to Daytona International Speedway Garage the next morning, and here's this number 15 uh, Ford white with blue numbers, and the thing is totally repaired. And it's like, how did you guys do this? Well, they stayed up all night. They replaced some sheet metal. The, the chassis was pretty good, but they needed to replace some stuff on the car, and the whole driver's side of the car had been damaged. And they came back. And lo and behold, at the end of the day, Bobby's out front from quite a few laps, and he ends up winning his first Daytona 500. So that's the one that really comes to mind. I guess second would be Ricky Rudd when he drove the Bud Moore 15 car. And then, but there's several drivers that have had success in it. Uh, you know, when you look back at, uh, say, Morgan Shepard, he he yeah. drove and won a race in Atlanta for Bud Moore in the 15. And so, but if you look at the win column, Bobby Allison has the most wins in number 15 with 14. And then you have several, Michael Waltrip, Clint Boyer, uh, Ricky Rudd, as I said, he has six. Buddy Baker had five. Uh, you know, Dale Earnhardt won three races driving a Ford. You know, everybody remembers Dale Earnhardt is driving the Goodrich Chevrolet all those years, but he actually won three races in a Ford. And uh, Jeff Bodine had three wins for Bud Moore in the 15. Benny Parsons won three races. But the one guy that the one guy that 
uh, took 15 to victory lane for the very first time was Tim Flock on August 12th, 1956 at Road America in Wisconsin. So that was the first time 15 won. But yeah, it's just one of those numbers that Bud Moore stayed with for many years and has some great drivers. But to answer your question, you know, Bobby, that number 1578 Daytona 500 win was truly remarkable. So when I think of the 15 car, Ben, I think of Lake Speed's red, white, and blue Ford quality care car from the mid nineties. Um, I don't know why, I don't know what it is. I just, I thought that car looked really cool. And then one of my favorite guys in NASCAR, when I was a kid, Wally Dollenbach drove the Hayes modems, uh, white number 15 car for Bud Moore in 1996. So those are the two and they didn't win for them, but I mean, you know, there, there are a ton of guys who had a lot of success for Bud Moore. Another one, you know, Morgan Shepard, so Morgan Shepard been like halfway through the 1990 Winston Cup season was the points leader driving for Bud Moore. Um, mm. There, his his level of success in NASCAR covered so many decades, and I think people when they think about Bud Moore, like you, they think about Bobby Allison. But he did he had a lot of great runs, like you said, with a bunch of guys. Um, you know, well after the late 70s and the early 80s. So um, his influence on Dale Earnhardt, I guess, was enough to uh, to drive Dale to go uh, drive the Wrangler car from Bud Moore and take that Wrangler sponsorship back to Richard Childress Racing and go there. But Bud Moore was a, a super cool car owner. Um, another guy, I think, that, uh, that, that drove for Bud Moore, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, uh, Jeff Bodine did in mm-hmm. the motocraft car and um, Brett Bodine too, right? So he had brothers driving for the same yeah, car owner sure at different did. times. He sure did. I, you know, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, and and uh, I think that's the only time he had two brothers drive for him, as far as Bud Moore goes. And uh, yeah, that. I mean, you know, Jeff had some good success in that car as well. But you know, as I was as you were talking there, I thought about something else. Back in the mid seventies, uh, you know, you have to sort of associate the fifteen with Buddy Baker. Because Buddy was the kind of guy who he didn't know anything but stopped and pushed it to the absolute max. That was Buddy Baker. The, the funny thing about Buddy, though, he, he was such a great driver on the racetrack, but off the track, in the garage, he could if, he, if walking in an area would make a rut in the concrete or the asphalt, he would be so nervous that he would walk from back from over here to over there, over here to over there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was so nervous before he got in one of those races, but once he got in there and got settled in, uh, buddy was really, really good, but he had, he didn't have a medium spot in the middle of that throttle. It's either it's in the stop on pit road or it's flat out. And that's the way buddy drove. And he was successful to win, I think 18 times yeah. in his career. But then there's a lot of times that he was out front, way out front and, course you know the engine let go and he pushed it too hard but he said i just didn't know any other way to do it that was the way i was taught to do it it was hard for me to be patient in the race car it's hard for me to be patient out of the race car because i still see him pacing back and forth uh, smoking a cigarette sometimes and just pacing back and forth waiting on the race to start greatest guy in the world though i mean (laughs) one of the funniest guys i have ever met in my life yeah he could always do the one line type you know, one-liners and so much fun to talk to, but yeah, he was, he was dead serious when he got in that race car and he was a very, very tough challenger for everybody else, especially places like Talladega and Daytona. Yeah, he, he absolutely was. So did you ever get a chance to interview Bud Moore by any chance, Ben? I was curious. I did. I really did. And what was he like? Oh, he was just, he was so, uh, 
I, I, I guess I need to word, use the word nice. He was so nice about if you called him at home away from the racetrack, and I had the honor to do that a few times, he talked to me like I was his very best friend. And I really honestly didn't know Bud that well. You know, I mean, I saw him on at the racetracks and stuff like that. We weren't close to friends like myself and Bobby are. But, you know, he was just, he was very respectful to me. And I said, thank you so much for calling. And I was like, man, this is such an icon in this business. And he gave me the time of day to, to talk about whatever, uh, you know, whatever that was going on that particular week. And I just felt honored to talk to him and, you know, very, uh, very good on his information, I guess is what I'm trying to say. If you ask him a point-blank question, he tell you, well, yeah, this is the way we're going to try to do this today. And in other words, he didn't meet a stranger. I mean, he was very quiet, but once you got to know him, he, he was very easy to talk to and very informative about what he was telling you. Yeah, he absolutely was. Um, but Bud Moore wasn't the only person, like we'd said, who, who'd had such an impact um, with the 15 car, right, Ben? Oh, no. I mean... That's correct. Uh, you know, there were some some folks uh, early in the game that that ran the 15 before he did, and uh, I, and I'm, there was another part of Bud Moore's life too that he ran the Trans Am circuit and had some really great drivers. Tiny Lund, for one, driving his cars, and Parnelli Jones, and uh, I think uh, you know Dan Gurney. I think drove a few races for him on that side of the fence, and then he got into the the Cup Series. You know a lot more and of course made that his home you know but early in the game he was a crew chief for say joe weatherly and and some others as far as the early years of nascar so yeah he was in in the nascar circles for many many years good deal um a couple people that i wanted to talk about today um different personalities different types of people i'm I'm, it's a bummer i didn't get a chance to meet either one of them ben um i'm I'm sure you have at least with, with one but We'll, we'll touch on this guy first. It's who I wanted to be when I was a kid. Um, there's no other way about it. Uh, we haven't talked about him at all on this podcast, I don't think. So we, we've kind of glossed over this subject. But when I was a kid, um, this is who I would imitate when I got my diecast cars out. This is the kind of voice I wanted to have. This was the this was the guy when you know when you were you know when you were asking a little kid what do you want to do for you know who do you want to be when you grow up that I wanted to be. Bob Jenkins from ESPN Speed World. That was that was the dream job for me, and I thought he was. I still to this day think Bob Jenkins is, if not the best, one of the best uh, television guys to ever do it for NASCAR. Tell me what you think about Bob Jenkins, and if you ever had a chance to meet him, because unfortunately I haven't. Well, I'll be honest with you, uh, Aaron. I never have met Bob Jenkins, but I remember seeing him on the uh, very very early ESPN coverage of races back in the early eighties, back when it was just being put on TV on a weekly basis. And he was a big part of that. And Larry Newber, if you remember Larry Newber, he was right alongside of uh, Bob Jenkins in those broadcasts. And they were so cool the way they did them because he had sort of a down home feel as far as his delivery, as far as telling fans what was going on, you know, on the racetrack and, I think he could just he he was very good at communicating what was going on on the racetrack on those in those very early races, and uh, it was it was much a very not to you know not to say they're not doing a great job now because they are but back in those days it was new to uh, a lot of fans it was new to television 
on a weekly basis like that. They cover things, you know, Wilkesboro and Richmond and and everything on the circuit, basically. I mean, they would cover all the races, but a very down-home feel, and I think Bob Jenkins was a big part of that. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, in the pantheon of NASCAR announcers, how would you rank, like if you had to rank a top four or a top five of the of the TV guys to ever do it, who would you say are, are your – who's your Mount Rushmore, Ben? Well, my Mount Rushmore by far has got to be Ken Squire. I, you know, Ken would be my first one TV-wise because I remember growing up with him – uh, and they're on the radio too. He before he, CBS started their coverage of the Daytona 500, he worked for MRN and and just he has that had that ex, just wonderful voice and very descriptive voice on on the radio. And then of course he moved over to television. He he was like very much like another great friend of mine that's passed away now. His name was Barney Hall. Everybody knew Barney uh, from MRN, and Barney had that way of of if you were looking at the uh, the dial of the radio in your car and you just keep flipping, flipping, flipping until you found the race, suddenly you hear Barney's comforting voice and it's like, oh, I got it. This is this is MRN. This is the race today. And I mean, Barney was so good. And, and Ken was the same way. They both had a delivery that was comforting. I th- that's the word I want to try to use because uh, you're like, okay, they're on top of this. They're on top of what's going on. And you know, some, some interviewers and some uh, guys in the booth, in my opinion, they just get too wound up when something happens and it takes yeah. away from what's going on on the racetrack where Ken Squire and Barney Hall and Bob Jenkins, all three had a way of saying, yeah, there's a 20 car pile up, but they're not, you know, they're not making it to where you're so distracted by their voice. They're trying to tell you what's going on. And that's, that would be my top three. It'd be Ken Squire, Barney Hall, Bob Jenkins, for sure. Okay. And for me, like I say, I've got to put, um, I've got to put Bob Jenkins first just because that, that guy was my hero as a kid. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Bennett, if there was somebody in the racing world, in the NASCAR world who I haven't met yet, he'd probably be number one. Um, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of the, a lot of my heroes in the sport and people who I admire a whole lot. And he's probably the one that I'd like to meet most that I haven't had a chance to one. Well, now, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, was, I, was, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Aaron, but I was just going to say, I've been in this business 38 years and I'm not sure why, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I've never really had the honor of meeting Bob. We just never have crossed paths. I uh, have great admiration for him, uh, from and I have for many, many years. But for whatever reason, we just haven't passed, you know, in a garage or in a media center. And that's kind of strange, I guess we have it. But he he's one of the very best announcers for sure. Okay, um, so to give my top four, like I said, it's got to be. I think Bob Jenkins, Ken Squire, for all the things that he that he did to bring into the sport. Um, Barney Hall is probably mm-hmm. up there for me. And uh, let's see, who would I say fourth? I, Mike Joy's got, up there. I mean, I, I don't want to. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. Like, you know, we, we haven't really touched on some of the newer guys, but you know, right. calling Mike Joy newer is is insane because he's been calling races since the early '80s. But I think sure. he's got to be up there. Bob Varsha is really good. Dave Despain is really good. And, you know, you get right. into pit reporters too, man, and it's 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 tough to really get into a top four or five. Right, and you know, you're right about Mike Joy. Mike's again one of those guys just like. Ken Squire and Barney Hall that has that comforting voice, authoritative voice, 
to be able to to convey what they're trying to say to the fan and them get it and understand what they're saying. But you know what? There's somebody else that just came to mind that I got to throw in there. And he didn't start off as an announcer, but he was one of the very best. That was Neil Bonnet. Yeah. Neil was so good about just the this calm delivery and and just explaining what was going on in the race car in such a way that you could understand it. It could be very technical from some announcers, but Neil could deliver it in about 15 seconds, some very, very technical something to why the car was going higher or why, what, you know, what was tire stagger or what was particular thing happening in the chassis or why he's having to drive high, you know, to get the car to work better. He was so good at that. I, I miss Neil. He was such a neat guy. Uh, as a driver and as an announcer and man i just really miss him yeah he was and the thing i think i've said this before the thing about neil when we made him our driver of the week i touched on the fact that i always thought it so strange that he would look at the camera when he was interviewed after Mm -hmm. he wrecked after he won a race and nobody else did that but he he, i'd like to know if he coached himself and how much of that you know was a learned skill uh, but he did have that presentation and that aura and for a pipe fitter from rural alabama man that that's that's pretty darn impressive um, another guy that, that is, is in this group of, of, of well-known announcers, and it's somebody that you're probably more familiar with than me, but I did want to touch on him as a guy named Brock Yates. Uh, everybody in the younger era of NASCAR doesn't probably know who Brock Yates is, and um, I, I'll admit, other than a book I had um, as a kid that, that prominently featured him, I didn't know much about him either. Um, Ben, do you remember Brock Yates at all? I do. I do. And, and Brock was, uh, he came to NASCAR, uh, late seventies. Matter of fact, one of his first, if I'm not mistaken about this, uh, broadcast for NASCAR was the 79 Daytona 500. And, uh, but he was the kind of guy, he would go to F1 and he would go all over the world doing races and, and very, very good uh, at what he was doing and very knowledgeable about so many types of, of, you know, motorsport. And yeah, he was very good and, and, uh, and a great author too. I read a couple of his books and I, again, one of those guys you have a lot of respect for. So here's an interesting fact about Brock Yates. Maybe you can confirm this, but I, ha- I have read this before and it, fr- it freaked me out when I, I, cause I saw it cause I'd never, I'd never known this. Uh, we talked all about these racing movies recently and one that we left out was the Cannonball Run, which is mm. a uh, it, Richard Petty's in it, as it were. Um, it, it's a uh, it's a story of these people driving cross country in this race that doesn't really have a lot of rules, other than you just you need to you know you need to get there first, you need to beat everybody else. It sounds kind of crazy, and it is, but it's a fun movie. I liked it when I was a kid. So apparently, Ben, as the story goes, Brock Yates helped come up with the idea for the real race, the Cannonball Run, and it was named after Cannonball Baker who was um, integral in the uh, the startup and the growth of NASCAR. Mm-hmm. That's right. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of out there and, but you know, he was, Brock was kind of a cornerstone of that, putting that together. And yeah, it's, it's a very unique way to race, I guess, very unique story. And, you know, to have a movie made that had some pretty big actors in it. I, it was, you know, I thought I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had some people ask me over the last week or so, um, you know, we, we talked about some of the movies that we discussed and unfortunately I haven't had a chance to see any of the ones that you've suggested to me yet, but I did carve out just enough time to watch Days of Thunder again. Um, 
So we, we've touched on NASCAR movies. We've touched on NASCAR t-shirts. We've touched on NASCAR hats. And we've touched on sheet metal and stuff as well. Um, but there are so many different things that people can collect, Ben. Um, I wanted to, to, to bring up one that I have. I haven't seen it in several years. So I needed I needed to dig it out. But as far as like the most random NASCAR things that you might own, I'd like to know what yours are. But to jog your memory, to give you a, some, some examples, some of the most random things that I own when it comes to NASCAR are I have a bottle of wine from the 1990 Winston that Dale Earnhardt won. Mm. Um, my buddy Lenny Batiki gave me that. Mm-hmm. It has it's really nice engraved on it. 1990, the Winston. Um, I, it's not been opened, um, so I don't know how valuable it is, but I think it's pretty cool. And then um, I have a Rusty Wallace diecast golf cart. Really? Yes. Um, so <laughs> I loved cool. golf when I was a kid. I still do. You know, I mean, it's you know we're we're in the the thick of uh, of of golf season. And, uh, you know, I love the Masters. I've been fortunate enough to go um, a couple times. But, yeah, so when I was like nine, I was at this racing store in Lincoln to North Carolina, which has long since ceased to exist. And they had a Rusty Wallace diecast golf cart. And I had to have it, man. I mean, I liked Rusty. I've always liked Rusty. And um, so, I, you know, we pulled the trigger and I got this I got, I got this diecast golf cart. Um and then I've seen a few on eBay since then for more than than we paid in in, uh, in 1996. But yeah, so it's got uh, it's his silver special paint scheme, uh, Miller Genuine Draft, uh, celebrating 25 years. Super cool. Um, still in its packaging too, because even when I was nine or ten years old, I was mindful of the collector value. So I stopped taking these things out and playing with them when I was like seven. Um, so it's still in its original box. But yeah, I have a diecast golf cart, and I'd like to know. I wonder if there's a market for diecast golf carts now. Like, would somebody buy a Denny Hamlin diecast golf cart or a Kyle Busch diecast golf cart? And that's the thing, too, Ben. It's not like it's like souped up, you know, like in like the mid 2000s or whatever, they came out diecasts of like hot rods that are like souped up with the cut paint schemes on it. This is literally just a regular golf cart, like an easy go golf cart painted like Rusty Wallace's car. I still think it's super cool. Yeah, and and that's you know it's one of those things that's a little bit obscure, and you think, well, it, it may or may not be valuable. It's one of those things you need to hang on to because someday it might be. You know, you can put your future kids through college with something like that because you just don't ever know how. And that's what's so hard to predict about this stuff. Is you know, I I was a big model car collector, un, unbuilt, but I had a like a thousand kits. I mean, literally a thousand kits, and I thought this is going to be the thing. Well, as it turned out. Some of our, uh, you know, teenagers today, they really don't take the time to build models like I did. I, so, I never did. No. And so I ended up selling my collection. So you just don't ever know what's going to be hot and what's not going to be hot. But I, I've got I've written down a couple, three or four things here that I think are really cool that I've collected. Uh, back in 2003, I had an interview with Richard Childress before he he started his winery in Welcome, North Carolina, in that area and uh our lexington area and he gave me a full unopened bottle of rcr wine mm-hmm. or richard childress vineyards wine yeah. before the vineyard was ever built and so and he signed it for me so i've got that that's awesome yeah i've also got a fifth i guess that's what it is a fifth of moonshine unopened Some Johnson signed still by, yeah <laughs> st- st- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, signed by Junior Johnson, 
uh, and of course we've lost junior and so I, so ben is this like the the you know the the mass produced junior johnson moonshine or is this yeah. the wink wink junior johnson north wilkesboro special now, moonshine gotta say in all honesty this is the mass produced one but now the statute of limitations <laughs> the statute of limitations is passed all right so oh, no. like you could have gotten it in like 1988 yeah. And it'd be okay now. So I'm not, their revenuers are not coming to your place, Ben. I promise. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, this, this was, this is the, the, the licensed, uh, moonshine that he, you know, had a company that made that. And, and now I have tasted the real thing, but junior told me, he said, this is good, but it's not as good as what we used to make. And so he signed that one for me and it's unopened. I got that. And, there now here's one of the cool ones that I'm really I'm honored to have. After Bobby Allison was was inducted or it was announced that he would be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2011, uh, and as I've said many times, I'm honored to say he he and I are very close friends. So yeah. after that went after that announcement was done, we went back to his house and we shared a six pack of Miller beer because that that was his favorite beer obviously miller high life Mm -hmm. because that was his sponsor well after we finished my beer i he said let me see that a minute and he took out a sharpie and it signed the empty bottle to me that's cool so so that that's cool and that means a lot to me that we and i know the story behind it because we were at his house just hanging out big big day because he had just it just been announced he was in the nascar hall of fame and there's one more i got to tell you there was a guy, uh, Dennis Warden, who mm-hmm. was at one time with Darlington Raceway, and they were redoing the remodel of Darlington a few years back. You know where they they added some seats on the front stretch and added a you know a wall of fame there. Uh, very a lot of improvements to the racetrack. They were going to chunk some of the old seats, and I and I asked him. I said, "What are you going to do with that?" I said. We're going to hang it. We're going to give it to you so you can hang it in the lunchroom. So it it came from what originally was the front stretch. Now is the back stretch. Mm-hmm. But it's a seat. It's a metal seat that was, you know, in concrete. And I've got it hanging upside down in the wheel well between a, a Rusty Wallace number two Kodak uh, piece of sheet metal, you know, where the back tire would go. That's yeah. where the seat is. And just to fill space there and the seat area and then the entire area. So, and Rusty did run the Kodak colors one time at Pocono and I've got a side off of that car. So, you know, it's just little things that may not mean anything to me. When people come to the lunchroom and say, why, why do you have a seat upside down on your ceiling? And I tell them the story and it's, it's just something that means a lot to me because I grew up going to Darlington and to, to get an old piece of the Darlington racetrack just to hang, I just thought it would be cool. So that's that's four things I can tell you about. So this discussion has has piqued my interest, and it's got me thinking. Um, can you name the drivers that you've ever had a beer with? Or, hmm. or I mean, like, you know, a glass of some sort of mountain-created beverage with Junior Johnson. <laughs> mountain-created beverage. Again, Ben, That's remember, good. remember, Ben, the statute of limitations has passed. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, under that category, the one that comes to mind immediately was Tim Flock uh, at his house in his garage. I walked in, and he had moonshine on the beams across, you know, in his garage. So and each beam had a different flavor. All right. So you had peach and blueberry and 
whatever on down. So I did have some moonshine with Tim Flock and, and not everybody can say they did that, but that was really, really cool. And I, like an inexperienced idiot, I didn't know how to drink moonshine and I chugged, you know, a good bit of it to start with. And he's like, Whoa, son, slow down, you know, cause uh, I didn't know. So I took <laughs> too big of a swig there and, uh, had to hang around his house for a little bit till I could drive home. But you know, that was one, uh, hmm. I have to say, and Bobby, cause you said, you said Bobby. Yeah, Bobby. We did. I had a beer with Bobby once. Uh, um, hmm. I've had a couple of, uh, soft drinks with Dale Earnhardt before. I mean, I don't know. It's not, <laughs> it's not beer, but I mean, we, we shared a, would you have you Jimmy know, drop? Do what? Did you have Jimmy drop? You know what that is? No. That is uh, that's Dale Junior's thing. I, I he probably got it from his dad, Jim Beam and Sundrop. Oh, okay. I have heard about one particular driver told me about Gatorade and Jack Daniels together, and that, I I don't know about that. Well, it goes to your bloodstream quicker, and you don't have to drink as much. Really? So, <laughs> that's what I was told. But, so, it, but the driver you, said, so who don't told tell you that? Well, the driver said, don't tell me, don't tell who I am because <laughs> I'm not fine. supposed to do That's that. That's fine. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we can look at the history of the Gatorade sponsorship and narrow it down uh-huh. pretty darn good, but that's okay. <laughs> I won't try too hard then. That's true. Uh, I, that's the only ones that really come to mind. After the show's done, I'll think of three or four more. That's always the way it works. You, you, we say our goodbyes, and then it's like, crap, I wish I'd have talked about this and this. But, uh, yeah, that's the ones that come to mind immediately. But, you know, that beer bottle that Bobby signed for me, it wouldn't mean a thing to some folks, but it sure does mean a lot to me because he, he just said, give me that, let me see that beer bottle a minute. And he pulled the Sharpie out and signed it to me that day, the day that he was – was told he was going in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I just think that's that's pretty special. That is, uh, I think he got me beat. I think the uh, the um, I think the diecast golf cart is probably the most um, family friendly of the ones we've listed. But I don't know, man. <laughs> Autographed beer bottles are tough, and I don't have any of those, so I got to step my game up. But I will I will answer the question that I asked you. I I take pride, Ben, in whatever. Um, I ask you, I want to answer as well. And so the um, there are two guys that I have uh, had the pleasure of sharing a beer with, um, maybe two, probably not three, would never admit to four. Um, and that is uh, Jeffrey Earnhardt and Ty Dillon. So mm-hmm. um, Jeffrey and I have uh, have known each other for, for many years, um, dating back to when he was just breaking into the, the Nationwide Series. and I was just breaking into the uh, then newspaper industry. Um, and, um, and, uh, so we, you know, we, we've had a few beers before and, 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 you know, every time we see each other, we always chat. Um, he's, he's a super cool guy. Uh, Jeffrey likes the Lagunitas IPA. Um, the last time I've had beers with him, that was his go-to. I don't know if it still is or not. Cause Scott, it's been like six years or so, maybe more than that. But, um, him and, uh, and Ty Dillon one time too, had a couple drinks with him and his manager. Ty's really, really cool. Has a great sense of humor that you don't see a lot. Um, outside of the realm of being a, a cup driver, but he's a super funny guy. Um, but I did not ask them to autograph any of the, the beer cans for me, which is a huge miss on my part. Now I have realized the collectible value and the opportunity which I have missed. And I have, uh, I have not, um, I've not done that. I need to do it, Ben. <laughs> hey, now now they like hit up some of these drivers and be like, yeah, man, why don't you sign one of these bottles for me? All right. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. We're totally friends. 
Yeah, well, here's the thing. I didn't ask Bobby to sign that for me. He just grinned real big and said, let me see your bottle. And I was like, what do you want my bottle for? And then he signed it. And I thought that was cool. I mean, you know, I mean, here's the thing about these guys. When you cover them as long as I have, or even, even, you know, if you're new to it, you know, you, you build this relationship with them. And, and the last thing in the world you really want to do is ask them for an autograph. Cause that's, right. that's just, you know, you don't really want to do that because Poor form. Right. For, right. Exactly. And you're, they're letting you into their world and, it's, it's a privilege to do that. And you just don't go there. But if, you know, there's times that they've done it for me and I didn't ask. And I said, well, and I'm certainly not going to turn that down and be rude and say, well, I don't want that. So I've, I have received a thing or two like that, but I same. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes you feel a little weird, but like, you know, like Carrie Earnhardt has given me a signed hat before. And, you know, I I think it's very thoughtful of them to do stuff like that. So, you know, I'm not going to turn it down, but I haven't solicited an autograph um, as a media person, never. And right. and in general, of a driver, it's been a very, very long time. But I will say, when I was a kid, though, man, going to those malls and going to Speed Street and stuff, that was autograph season for me. Yeah, and and you know, and, and that that's just a line that in the media we all, and I know you don't do it either, we just don't cross it yeah. because it's just not cool to do that. But now, right. there have been times that they knew I was coming and I had a couple of hats in hand that were going to be given to something like a cancer society or, or some type of charitable, charitable event. And they gladly signed that because they'd be auctioned off and the money go to, for cancer research or something like that. But, or say a local church, you know, one of those deals, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fine line and you don't want to cross it, but you're also, you can't, not be friends with these guys because you talk to them all the time on the phone or you see them at the garage and and you know a lot of times i'm sure it's this way with you too a lot of times you don't see them and talk to them about racing right a lot of times you talk to them about fishing or you're talking about the extension they're adding to their house so you talk about you know something has nothing to do with racing or you watch them go to the office in the hotel and pull a prank and tell them to have a 3 a.m. wake up call for one of their crew guys. <laughs> yeah. I have, uh, I've seen that. I will not divulge who it was, but I have seen that. And I had to admit I laughed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, they they become, and we're, and I'm honored to say that. Cause I've had, these are guys that I grew up with watching in the stands, uh, you know, racing at places like Darlington and, and Wilkesboro and stuff. And then, and then you have this incredible honor to cover them. I mean, I'm, I'm just blessed to be part of it. And I know you feel the same way. And then when you go into writing books, I think I've done like 10 books in my career on these guys and you get to know them. Even I got closer. a couple of them. Yeah. And I, it's just, I'm honored to be on that side. And, you know, my story very quickly, Aaron, I wanted to be a race car driver and that's not what the good Lord had in mind for me. And I didn't have the money and I probably had way less talent than I had money. And I did it for a little bit, but that just wasn't where I was supposed to go. So this is what I tell folks. I said, you know, I got to the cup series and instead of going through the front <laughs> door, I went and circled the house three or four times and then went in through the back door. Well, and, and you still... did get this, you know, you did, you did go pretty darn fast down this interstate after driving with Bobby Allison. It's not like you have <laughs> no, true. you know, it's like you have no stories now. That's true, but I could, I should probably still be in jail 
for that. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. Oh, yeah, no, the statue. This should, is a good I thing about. We, we could rename this podcast the Statue of Limitations Podcast <laughs> and just like yeah. talk about the questionable decisions that we, we could have made yeah. in some part of our NASCAR careers. And this is you know, true. Now that we've gotten. Now that we've gotten by, I'm I'm convinced, man. I'm 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 putting my foot down. I'm going to get you to admit that you have some like some of the secret good Junior Johnson moonshine stuff still. From I sure wish I like I to did. think you had like a it's like a wine cellar, but it's a moonshine cellar. And you like go down there, and it's got like these racing themed labels on them, and it has like you know Junior Johnson still uh, 1984 vintage Daryl Waltrip Winston Cup Champion Edition. I know he didn't win the championship in '84, but you know go right. with it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, see, here's the thing. I, you know, I look at that. I look at that fifth of moonshine that Junior gave me, and he signed it to me. Mm-hmm. And I look at it and say, "Is that really moonshine or is that water?" Because right. I know you're not going to open it, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you start looking at it on the shelf. Say, "I just want to know, man. I just want to know. Is that water? Or is that the real thing?" <laughs> so you know, it, yeah. I don't know. It's it's just been a fun ride and. And uh, we, you and I both are very fortunate to be part of it. And Absolutely. I just, we just like to share some of these yeah, funny man. things that have happened to um, us over the crazy, all these years. For sure. And I wanted to go back to one other point that we had discussed. Um, I, uh, I have seen media people ask for autographs. And it is like, so if you guys don't know, and th- you probably have no reason to know unless you're friends with a media person. When we get credentials or like, and it's not just for media. Like if you are a volunteer and you work like for a department, you know, at a racetrack for an event, typically they, they have this on the back of your credential or whatever pass you have that you can't ask for autographs. That's, that's, that is like base one. That is the, um, the foundation of, uh, of the expectations that are, that you, that are given of you. And, so I have been to, I've been in Bristol several years ago, Dale Jr.'s last race at Bristol and a lady, um, I don't know if she was new to the, you know, the media industry or what it was, it's possible, but, um, she had Dale Jr. autograph her credential and which is an ultimate flex Ben, because like she had him autograph her credential on the back of the credential, like, and I, I saw the credential because, you know, obviously, you know, I was working with, I was at work share at Bristol at the time in the PR department. So they took the credential and she had him autograph the credential to where like his handwriting is over the part of the credential that says you cannot ask for autographs or this credential will be taken. Um, yeah. So ultimate flex on her part. She didn't get to keep it. Um, they gave her a new one and she was really lucky um, that, you yeah. know, she definitely got the talk from people at NASCAR and all about like, this is strike one, two, two point one, all the way to two point nine nine. So like, if you slip up again in any way, that you're done. And so it's a bummer to see that because it's just. But at the same time, it's just so cringe because you're like, how do you not know that? That is, yeah. that is the baseline of knowledge. Um, I have seen media people get uh, Chase Elliott's autograph after races, which is also cringe. Yeah, um, yeah. There now, are times though. Yeah. I mean that it that it is appropriate. Sure. But. But, but not when you're not, wearing like, no, no, not when you're wearing work stuff. You know what I'm saying? No, no. Like if you're there and you got your credential on, and you're with a media outlet or something, like do not do it then. Like if you're off mm-hmm. the clock and you're wearing like a t-shirt or something, and you're kind of low key, and it's not like around all the media people, <laughs> then maybe sure. you can get by with it. But like well, when you interview the guy and then get his autograph or whatever, that is not going to no, fly because somebody no, will is, always rat you out. <laughs> that is totally, totally, totally wrong and. If you're in a situation like this, like like I mentioned about being at Bobby's house and he grabs the bottle and said, I want you to have this. Okay, you're not at a racetrack. You're not in the garage. Uh, if they initiate that, 
okay, but I don't ask for them either, and it's because it's just an unwritten rule. A couple of folks have honored my being there to say, hey, like Richard Childers, for instance, I want you to have this bottle, and I want to sign it for you because this is going to be such a great thing to see develop down the road. Okay, in that sense, in that sense, you're not going to say, well, gosh, I don't want that. I, don't, I have nowhere to put that. You're not going to say that to him. You're going to take it graciously. And, but I, but you don't ask him for it because it's just that line that you sure. don't want to cross. Now, there's one time I do remember, I can't remember what we were celebrating. It might have been the 25th anniversary of Richard Petty's 200 victory. I think that's what it was. And the PR department had brought out a bunch of little 43 STP matchbox cars and gave them to the media. And we had a photo op with him, all the media folks in the media center. I think this was at Bristol. And he signed all these cars for us. Okay, that's an appropriate situation, right? Yeah. Because it was set up. But no, it. I mean, I want the fans to understand, and, and I'm sure you're the same, We mm-hmm. we don't seek this out it no not at all i mean i get ben's autograph when we pick up our credentials and that's it like i bring my stuff there and he brings it you know he brings me his race programs and i sign them for him and it's done it's before we pick up our credential you know you gotta you gotta be on the up and up right and it's (laughs) in these these scenarios that that i've ever gotten something like this is away from the racetrack it's initiated by the driver not me because i i just i'm a stickler about that i'm not going to ask for an autograph and but if they offer it to me at in honor of them, I'm sure I'm not going to insult them and not take it. Sure. But I'm never going to ask them because that, especially at a racetrack, that and you know you talk about the young lady who and she may not have known. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's and just that's, one and of those. I, and I think it's very possible because I mean she yeah. looked like she was like you know early mid twenties and all. And if you if or if you got a new job and you haven't done something like that before, then yeah, I, I totally believe that. I mean it, it's not like, and I've seen you know we had Mario Andretti come to the racetrack a few a couple years ago for the robo race and there was media people asking him for his autograph and um that's real that puts me in a tough spot because i don't yeah. like to rat people out i really don't but i also know that like if i if you don't say something it's only going to get worse for them yeah for so sure. my 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 idea was to be like i saw this you can tell nascar if you want I'm just throwing it out there. I don't want to, I don't want to get them in trouble, but at the same time, it's like, you cannot be so flagrant as to have a Mario Andretti eight by 10 picture and a Sharpie in your hand when he walks in the media center and get his autograph and people like, and guys, the Sharp Motors people media center sees like more than a hundred people. So like people are going to see this again. You cannot be so flagrant about this. Um, and, and you know, man, this is real interesting. The culture of NASCAR and a culture of F1 are, are different because I have, I've learned recently that like media people apparently get autographs and they cover F1 races. And I say that just because like there's people who sell them online. They're like, you know, yeah, my, my friend is a media person and he got all these things signed at the race. So I guess it's okay over there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never been over, okay over here, um, except in the circumstances that we've mentioned and also like working for the racetrack. So I've had Chase sign stuff after the race um, that we put in um, somebody's office on the seventh floor and then... Um, it goes gets shipped out to um, to people who bid on it for Speedo Children's Charities auctions, yeah, which is right, super sure. cool. Um, mm-hmm. Because I mean, man, you you know that beefs up those auctions hardcore when you got Chase Elliott autographed like tires and, and stuff like that. Man, 
those bids go through the roof and it's super cool. But yeah, yeah. moral of the story, if uh, if you're at a race and you have a ticket, get an autograph if you get a shot. Don't go crazy about it. But if you have a credential, just just don't. <laughs> just right. don't. Well, because here's the thing. Somebody two, might see it. <laughs> yeah, two quick things. And I'm again, I'm, I'm just I'm not trying to brag about this. I'm honored by it. Okay. Please tell me somebody's been Japan. asking for your autograph. Please. Do what? Please tell me somebody asked for your autograph. Someone had, someone did ask for my autograph. Yes. 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 Okay. And, go ahead. And I've Sorry. signed. And it's the weirdest feeling in the world. I've signed, you know, many of the books, of course, yeah. that I've written, and it's just like, why in the world do you want my autograph? I mean, it's just so weird. But there was a gentleman when I was in Japan at Suzuka in 1997, and he was from the area, and he could not speak English. But he had he was carrying one of my books and he handed me the book and handed me a Sharpie and I'm obviously, you know, I knew what he wanted. And so I signed his book and he was very gracious. And I thought, man, I'm in Japan and he can't speak English. I can't speak Japanese. But we we connected and we knew. Sure. I knew. And I was very honored to do that. But I'm telling you, fans, it is the weirdest feeling in the world to sign an autograph for somebody I've not won a race. I've not won a championship. <laughs> Why do you want it? I signed some but, when I was at Nickelodeon as a kid, but you know, I think now it's probably been it's been quite a long time. Uh, I do have to tell one quick story, Ben. Then yeah. you say this. My buddy Willie Brown is one of my best friends. Willie is a videographer at Charlotte Motor Speedway. He is incredibly good at his job. He wins Employee of the Month like Jimmy Johnson would win Cup races in the two thousands, and he deserves it. He's really really good at what he does. Willie. Uh, was working with a driver um, who was moving up the ranks to the truck series from late models. This is like 15 years ago. And they were at the pit where they do this autograph session in Mooresville around Christmas time every year um, where you donate to, uh, to, their, to their, their charities of choice and um, you can get driver autographs. Bobby Allison's there all the time. Um, I've, I've gone as media a couple times. Um, to interview like Dale Jr., Ryan Newman, Bobby, the King. Um, so like 15 years ago, Willie was there, um, you know, just kind of working with this guy. He was he was on his crew. And, and you know, just as well as I do, Ben, when you're working with a late model guy, you're their PR, you're their tire changer, you're everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so Willie's kind of just standing by, and this guy, I'm not going to divulge his name. Um, he's not like a big name driver, but if you watch truck races over the last like 10, 12 years, you would have heard of him. So he... Um, he signed autographs. Somebody else gets up. They have to leave early. And the organizer goes to Willie and is like, I want to sit down and sign. And Willie's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not anybody. <laughs> and mm. like, ah, it's fine. They won't know. Um, so <laughs> so somebody, somewhere out there, Willie signed. He's, he's, like, I'm, he's like, I'm so proud of this. Somebody brought me this white driver helmet. It's, you know, like the solid white one for autographs. Got all these racing legends autographs on it. Terry Labonte, Bobby Allison, Sterling Marlin. And um, and Willie signed it too. So I bet you somewhere this guy's tried to sell this at some point. If he did, and they're like, oh, "Who's all these autographs? Who's that? Who is that guy? Who could that be?" And they're never going to figure it out. Yeah. Well, real quick, Aaron, I've got a helmet here that when we did a driving school with BA in 1995 for NASCAR Illustrated, and it was he was sort of my coach. After the thing was over with, uh, I said, "What well, you know." All the guys that were with me in the school, you know, it'd be fun, you know, for the drivers that took the same school that I did to sign out, you know, they're sign my helmet. There's a lot of names on there. I, I can't make out. There was a couple of guys 
that I worked with, Jim Flew Hardy and Tim Wilcox at NASCAR Illustrated. They uh -huh. signed it. It was all a big gig, a gag. Yeah. And so, um, Flew Hardy's Bobby, a funny guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And Bobby grabbed the helmet and he wrote to Ben. Thank you so much for not running into me on the racetrack. <laughs> and I still got that. I mean, it was just, it was one of those funny things that, you know, everybody, I'm sorry to say some of those guys, I don't, I can't read their handwriting, but it's just cool to have it. But on top of the thing, but when Bobby said, thank you so much for not running into me on the racetrack, I thought, okay, that was cool. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's good stuff um and so yeah like i said earlier guys if you get a chance to get autographs you know take advantage of it as a fan if you get an opportunity to get an autograph as a media person wearing a credential carrying a camera and a microphone please don't yeah please don't um but yeah this has been an absolute blast ben um i think we have reached the checkered flag on this autograph session i mean uh our, our confession i mean our episode 15 podcast it has been a blast chatting up with you um, we're going to be back with episode 16 faster than a Joe Gibbs racing pit stop, which I mean, Denny Hamlin's cruise so fast, Ben, he, it kind of cost him a 500 this year cause they were so sure quick. Did. Um, but you know, we're going to be back sooner than the next Daytona 500. I can promise you that. But in the mm. interim, throw a rating our way, wherever you're listening, we'd love to hear your feedback. Um, you know, love those just like the Jeff Bodine's car when it was sponsored by Levi Garrett. I love those five stars. Um, but in the meantime, Appreciate you guys listening. Um, we will again, you know, push this uh, th this episode on the at NPP NASCAR Pole Position podcast because we are part of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network, which uh, gives us the the opportunity for us to trade stories and confess to things that we've uh, acquired. And, and eventually, Ben's going to admit to having his seller of, of Junior Johnson moonshine, but we haven't gotten there quite yet. In the meantime, however. For my buddy Ben White and his secret moonshine collection, I'm Aaron Burns, owner of Rusty Wallace Collectible Golf Cart. Thanks for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. So long, everybody.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.